0: I'm uh, Michael, and I'm a compulsive overeater, uh, and uh, I want to thank Nick for uh, asking me to share with you this morning. It's uh, always a privilege to come to this meeting specifically, because this is my home meeting. Um, I've been coming here for over 20 years, and uh, the thing, it's as simple as getting a commitment. <laughs> That's the thing that keeps me coming here. Um i bought your half and half and your orga- organic whatever it is this morning. And uh, so I always try to get a commitment at this meeting so that I can show up. Um, I came to you originally in the uh, 80s. Uh, I uh, had a year of sobriety in, in the beverage program, and I had this three-pack-a-day three addiction of cigarettes. And I couldn't stop. And so in my AA program, my meetings I'd go and I'd ditch and complain about it. And the old timers would get in my face and tell me to shut up. And that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And they'd say, You can smoke yourself to hell. We don't want to hear about it. Say, oh, these people are abrasive. And I remember an English guy, I wonder what happened to him Brian, he put his arm around me at the log cabin where we used to meet. And he said, Michael, he said, You know, there's something called smokers anonymous and uh, and I didn't know that. And I but you know it still exists, I think it's known as nicotine anonymous now. It's still going strong. And I went there and I and I ditched and complained for six weeks and it was a very small meeting and the guy, um after six weeks the three pack of day cigarette addiction was lifted. Mm-hmm. And it was miraculous. And it was and I was I felt very good and shortly after the guy there would just be me and him a lot of weeks, and he'd say, you know what, I nominate you secretary, and he took off, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I was secretary, and many weeks I'd be there with a big book, and nobody would show up, and I'd read the big book, but, you know, a day at a time, thank God, I, am. So yeah, I don't want to, so that's a good thing. The only thing here is, is um, I got hungry.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and I don't know about you but after even after a good OA meeting I still get hungry I get real hungry and um, so uh, so uh, I put on uh, 30 pounds in 30 days and uh, I was off and running with my compulsive overeating and it wasn't the first time I ate that way but uh, it was the first time I was aware of it because I was clean and sober and, and I wasn't asking me yet and so I came and I hung out with you guys And I listened, and I heard that a lot of you didn't eat sugar, and a lot of you didn't eat flour and bread, and make three meals a day, nothing in between. And I tried to do that, but like I said, I got hungry after meeting. And then I go, and so I went to AA, and I said, you know, I get hungry, and I'm eating Haagen-Dazs, and I'm eating pizza, and I'm eating eggnog shakes, and the same AA people say, don't you ever learn Schmuck. You don't give a shit about sugar. (laughs) And I got it. And and, uh,
1: so after
0: about a year of doing this, I raised my hand because I wasn't really participating in a way. And I said, my name is Michael. I'm a compulsible reader and I need help. And Matt M. uh, reached out to me who has, uh, you know, lost 150, 200 pounds, whatever. And uh, and he uh, told me to call him. He suggested I call him. And I called him the next day. And he said, what did you eat yesterday? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, what are you going to eat today? And I said, I don't know. And if I was going to tell the truth, I was going to say, I don't want to know. I don't want to know what I'm putting in my body because that would be real. And I'd have to admit to myself that I'm anesthetizing myself with food, like I did with drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and whatever else. But he was very kind and gentle. And he said, why don't you just call me tomorrow morning and write down everything that you've eaten. And, uh, and we'll just talk about it. And I don't remember what I ate. It was a long time ago, but um, uh, I'm sure it was cleaner because I knew I had to report to him. At least in my head, he didn't care what I ate. And, uh, and he got me on the path of uh, what I call taking a fifth step with my food on a daily basis. And for those of you who are new, the fifth step is minute to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And I just substitute to wrongs with food, the exact nature of my food. And that, some reason, um, helps me to get in contact with a power greater than myself that can, most of the time, let me make healthy food choices. There's a lot more involved, but that was the first step that I, that I took and that I felt comfortable enough to share with Matt. There's a guy, I spoke in Studio City on Sunday morning. It's a great meeting, Sunday mornings at 7.30 in Studio City. I think, who the hell gets up at 7.30? It's a full house in a beautiful church, a beautiful venue. And a guy came up to me after the meeting. He says, Matt M is my sponsor. And I know Matt lives in Florida or something. And I know, you know, anyway. So it was nice to know. And he says, Matt speaks about you. And I always speak about Matt in my meetings because he was my estimate to this program. So I trudged the road and I was on my merry way. I never had a home group, though. Never had a home group in, in any of my programs. And uh, I come from a background of mental illness. My uh, mother was diagnosed with postpartum depression when I was born. That's fairly common, I think, among ladies after they have um, kids. But my mom's depression never went away. And then in the early 50s, it turned into diagnosis postpartum de- uh, depression. And then they said postpartum psychosis. And then she was a schizophrenic. They diagnosed her as being a schizophrenic. And she would come home, and she'd have many uh, suicide attempts and um and when she'd go into the hospital uh a lot of private doctors and her money ran out and um they had an operation called a lobotomy in the early fifties and they believed that if they cut that part of your brain of this disease, that you would be cured. And she was the first to volunteer. She wanted it really bad. She'd go into the Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino. And she'd have shock treatments, and she'd be lucid for periods of time. And she'd kind of crave it, because that was the only thing that would shock her back into reality. So she had the lobotomy, and um, it didn't make her any better. It didn't make her any worse. But... Um, so she continued to uh, just kind of, we'd go visit her in the hospital, and sometimes she'd be lucid, and she'd say, Michael, I want to come home and take care of you. And then other times she'd just be like catatonic, and she'd be violent, and she'd slap my father across the face. And it's just very really kind of confusing for a kid, you know, and scary. And the nature of my disease, and I understand, I hear from the podium compulsive over that have father-knows-best existences, but they're just as scared as I am. I think it's the nature of the disease. And the danger of me sort of using that history to, it makes me sort of a victim in a way. And uh, and I know it's, it's, it didn't make me a compulsive relief. I mean, there are people probably that had that in their family that didn't choose to anesthetize themselves. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the 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 thing I'm trying to get at is she keeled over from a heart attack in her early 40s in the uh, uh, Camarillo State Hospital, going to get a pack of cigarettes. And she died. And, uh, and needless to say, I was a little scared and a little resentful. And when I was going to Hebrew school with Jack, and we were learning, I went to Hebrew school with Jack and that was a long time ago.
1: <laughs> and
0: um, we were learning about God, and God that didn't mean anything to me. You know, it meant that I was going to get Bar mitzvah because my father wanted me to get Bar mitzvah because he wasn't Bar mitzvah, But I had no idea what my religion, what a higher power was, but being a father now of four children and a grandchild, a 10-month-old grandchild, um, I know what it means to, uh, to uh, want your kid to uh, be close to the higher power and not to suffer. And I think that's what my dad was doing. You know, he didn't, I don't think he understood it any more than I did. He died of cirrhosis of the liver in his late 50s, and his dad died of cirrhosis of the liver. So, I mean, my family is just surrounded by the disease. My Uncle Danny, my dad's brother in the early 60s, decided to come out of the closet and tell everybody that he was gay and that he was living with a man. And everybody knew that he was gay. (laughs) (laughs) But for some reason, when he decided to come out with it, uh, nobody wanted to accept it. Mm -hmm. And he was devastated. And it wasn't fashionable to do that in the early 60s. So uh, I remember he had a suicide attempt. And on Hayworth, which is where my son is living, it's a street, he took me in a room and he started to cry, and I must have been about 11 years old. He said, Michael, nobody understands in a family. I love men. I love... And, you know, I don't know. And he was trying to open up to anybody. And, uh, and you know, I would say, you know, Uncle Daniel, well, you know, just to please the family, could you just like women? That would be you know, like the solution I am, 11 years old. What do I want? Do? And he said, No, Michael, it's a little bit more complicated. And now I was kind of, you know, now in retrospect, that's sort of an honor that he was kind of opening up to me. I was close with my uncle. I really was because my parents were in and out of hospitals, and my uncle was always around. But it, he, it was crazy in my house. So the second suicide attempt was successful. So by the time he was age 30, he had killed me. So, um... So at any rate, um, so I was in this job for 12 and a half years, part-time. And in those days, I considered myself an actor. I graduated from L.A. City College, and they had a good theater arts department. And I I was pretty talented, but I was kind of scared, (laughs) a lot scared. And um, that's the other time when I was compulsive overeating. In, In City College, I was a munchkin. I was a skinny kid most of my life. Um, my metabolism didn't change until I was in City College. And I came in at about 125, and during that summer in the Wizard of Oz when I was a munchkin and everybody met in the green room, I found eggnog shakes and taquitos at um, foster which was, on <laughs> and that was far more comforting than being with those self-obsessed egocentric actors that I lived with. And I was just one of them. But, uh, so at the end of that uh, run, I was 125. I was uh, like a 27, 28 waist. And my waist went up, uh, I guess they measured it. It was like 36, and I weighed 185, 190 pounds. And so that's what a 60-pound weight gained during the summer. And I was kind of flaunting my, like, because I always thought that if I had more girth, that I would be more attractive. I would be, you know, never, ever satisfied with who I was. So um, anyway, so I thought that uh, I might have a little schizophrenia going on because in this job for 12 and a half years that I didn't want to commit to, they had asked me to commit full-time, and I said, No, I'm an actor. I have to uh, be available for auditions. So I leave this job at 12, and I wouldn't go on audition, but I go to the beach because I wanted to work on my can in case an audition ever came my way. And, uh, and i call my sponsor, and, and i say, I want to quit, and he says, quit, Michael, but get another job before you quit. And I got really crazy, and I started seeing psychiatrists, started seeing psychologists. I would, at the end, I would and I'd take teddy bears to you guys. It was really cool in the 80s, because if you were a guy, maybe if you were a girl too, if you took a teddy bear, you'd attract the opposite sex. And they'd really think that you were cute. And uh, and I and I and I took classes and I would beat tennis rackets and anger. I was just and, and I and I and I was I got away from you guys, and I got heavy into psychotherapy and and I couldn't understand because you guys were telling me to get out of myself. And when I felt bad, to do something, help somebody else and to shake hands. And the therapy was telling me to explore my feelings and my childhood and to just really get into that and get into the anger. And and I couldn't equate doing both of them. So guess which one I quit? Mm -hmm. And I went directly into therapy. And and I got into active compulsive overeating. Um, Not necessarily going turning to the food, but when you don't turn to the food, the head gets, it's called a dry drunk in AA. And people started turning ugly, and my grandma was ugly, and my mother was ugly, and you and were ugly, and the <laughs> teddy bear was even getting ugly. <laughs> was ugly. But so, um, anyway, um, I started Popping Hills alcoholically, and um, and I went to see Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul's in our big, big book, there's a story called Unacceptance, if you haven't read it, it's my favorite story. He lived in Laguna Beach. He was very accessible to all of us. All you had to do was call him, and he spoke at a meeting, and he said, Never in my 20-some-odd years of sobriety have I had a problem too much. The 12 steps didn't offer me a solution, and I was so far away from the 12 steps, and I was so out there that I knew this man was speaking to me and speaking my, my truth. So I was too afraid to ask him for his number, but his wife, Max, was sitting in the front row, and I asked Max for his number. And I called him the following day, and I told him what was going on with me. And uh, to make a long story short, um, he brought me back to the 12 steps. And um, then he got frustrated with me because one day I called him, and I decided to not go to work and practice one of my other addictions. And um, he said, Mike, in, uh, in abstinence and sobriety, we do stuff that makes us feel good, not stuff that makes us feel guilty. And I tried to tell him that's why I stayed home, because that other addiction really felt good. And he didn't think that was funny. And he said, I'm going to leave you alone with yourself, Mike. Don't call me for a while. There's a part of you that wants to recover, and there's a part of you that doesn't. I'm going to leave you alone. And he left me alone with the disease. And it was very, very scary. I was working the steps with him, and I was right in the middle of my fourth step. And finally, I finished my fourth step. And I called Paul, and I said, hey, I'm ready to take my fifth step. He said, great, you know, we'll do it. And we put a date out. And then after a meeting one night, he called me. And says, Michael, he says, Michael, I forgot. He said, I forgot that I judge you. And I judge that you should be further along than you, be, you are. And it's a character defect that I have. And it wouldn't be fair to you for me to listen to your fifth step. Because the fifth step is supposed to be a spiritual experience. And I I thought, and I was gooey chasing because I loved Dr. Paul. I wanted him to listen to my fifth step. So I said, Paul, I said, could you pray for that character defect to be removed so that you could listen to my fifth step? And he laughed and he said, it hadn't been removed in 26 years. He says, but I'll pray. So along comes Richie. And Richie's been in the program forever and he talks like you. And he said, you know, Michael, he said, it took me three days to read my fifth step to somebody. He says, you know, if you want to read the fifth step to me, I'll suffer. I'll you know, read it. <laughs> so I read the fifth, and sure enough, it took three days. Not three days, of straight, we, we broke so the meal. That was the best part. The, the, the thing about the, the fourth and the fifth step is the same character defects, different people. And by the end of the third day, we were, I, was, I was nauseous. I was a fifth <laughs> fifth so, uh, so he helped take me through the fifth step. Uh, I decided t- that I was going to change my sobriety date because I started popping pills. Now, I got these pills um, from a psychiatrist, and I got them legally, but the way I was doing it, I didn't check it out with a sponsor. I called the psychiatrist, and I said, you know what, these pills aren't doing anything for me. I need more. And the psychiatrist said, they're not supposed to do anything for you. They're supposed to level you out. I, said, I don't want to be leveled out. I want to feel something. Can you prescribe or do more for me? So I started using these things alcoholically. And I would li- and hear in my other program about people that would con their psychiatrists and do all this stuff. So I started calling Dr. Paul, and I said, you know, Paul, I think that, um, that I'm going to join a home group. I've never had a home group. He says so I think that's a great idea. And I joined this home group, this crazy home group that believes uh, that, that you, if you, uh, I have six minutes on life. but I, uh, uh, I'm not a controlled person, but I have six minutes on <laughs> Anyway, so this group taught me a little structure and a little discipline, and it's everything that I hate, and it's everything that I need. And they taught me that if you're going to go to a meeting, you get a commitment at a meeting. It taught me that you shake the hand of the speaker, even if you don't like the speaker. It taught me to get out of myself. It taught me if you're gonna if you're gonna represent a meeting that's saving your life, you put on a coat and tie. I can take off the coat because it's hot in here, but i of wear a tie because you put on a coat and tie if you go to church or to temple or to a job interview. So why not do that? So all this contrary action, all this structure and discipline, holds me in good stead. And I and I and so when I got to this home group in the beverage program, I, told, I, I was very afraid to come back to you guys because in my home group, they believe in one sponsor, and I have a defect that I ran my shit by everybody, and then the person that would agree with me is the direction that I would take. <laughs> And that's why strong sponsorship is so important to me. And so when I went to my other sponsor and I said, you know, I want to go to OA and I'm going to need a sponsor and I knew he was going to tell me not to do it, he said, go ahead, kid, because he's not a compulsive overeater. And so I came to you and I got Richie as a sponsor and I started calling on my food on a consistent basis and taking a little mini inventory and things got kind of good. And the things that are really good for me is because I get complacent and I start to look for my answers in other places because I have the practice of um, getting commitments at meetings and it gets me tethered to the program because I have the discipline of calling my sponsor, whether he wants me to or not mm-hmm. on a daily basis, talk about not only the exact nature of my food, but the Jack exact nature of the mishigash, the craziness that's going on, like on in my head on a daily basis, it purges it, and it allows a higher power to come in and replace all that craziness with patience, tolerance, kindness, love, all the stuff that we learn in the program. Um, it's a little bit easier to do it with you guys than it is with my family. Um, and uh, that's okay, because it's Dr. Paul's story. It says you'd think that you know it would be just the opposite, but, uh, but family is, is tough. Um, but um i uh, i married the girl that uh, that i was going with for 10 years because i didn't want to commit to her because i had a previous marriage that was not successful and the fact is i was scared to commit and uh, she was uh, i was lucky enough that she stuck around and uh, we started having kids <laughs> And we have three children. We have uh, Isabel is 21 and Elliot is 17, basketball, Fairfax High School. And um, and uh, Nikki just started high school. So we basically have like three, three teenagers. I have a son, uh, Sean, from a previous marriage, who was told by a psychiatrist uh, about seven years ago that he was bipolar. He had been in several mental institutions and that... Uh, When I met with the psychiatrist and Sean and told the psychiatrist my story because I wanted Sean to get sober so badly. Sean, I had no power to to get Sean sober, but the shrink had power. And so the shrink turned to Sean and said, Sean, why don't you try what your dad is doing? It might save you some grief. But he put a caveat on it. He said, you're bipolar. You have to have that medication. And you're gonna to have to take that for the rest of your life. I got a very structured home group that people take medication, you know, we're not doctors for crying out now. But Sean got a sponsor that suggested perhaps he not try the medication a day at a time. So he's six and a half years clean and sober. Uh, he found a he uh, a, what is it, a spouse on AA campus, they say in the big book uh, Alicia, she's a gorgeous girl. And she's got a few years sobriety and they had uh, Eli, Elijah Wolf is my grandson's name, and that uh, he's 10 months old. I saw him yesterday. And, uh, you know, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that my son is clean and sober. I remember being in a meeting with Carl and uh, the West Side Pavilion, and I had just seen them put my son in restraints, and he was just, he had a look that my mother had. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was not planning on sharing about it, and I just broke down. I broke down. A bit. and broke down. And I, uh, and a lady who, who is in this program, I haven't seen her since, said, why don't you call your sponsor, your AA sponsor? And I called him. I never call him. He's only speaking all over the world, and I don't want to disturb him. But I called him, and he was clear across the country. And he said, kid, he said, that might be the best thing that happened to your son because when I was in the Texas State insane asylum and I got out, I said, I never want that. I never want to go through that again. For some reason, that calmed me down enough to go and visit him and, uh, and like I said, God's in charge. And when I let God be in charge, uh, my son is, uh, thank God, a day at a time, uh, living a good life. Um, I get scared for my, uh, I got 30 seconds. I get scared for my, uh, I, got, I get scared for my family and I try to manipulate and control. There's yet another program for that. Those of you who are interested. But um, anyway, I just got up, keep breathing as my sponsor says and do what I'm doing and stay tethered to you. And my life gets better. And I get scared, but my life gets better. I'm done. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of O-Readers Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on an OA podcast. Okay. Um, so, yes?
1: Thank you so much Michael. Can you talk a little bit about um, the process of connecting funding higher power and how you still connect with that on a
0: daily basis? Yeah, the question was how, um, what was the process of me connecting with a higher power and how I still connect with that on a daily basis. I told you about my mom and how resentful I was. After doing inventories and listening to you guys and and, trying to live on the sunny side of the street, I come to realize that uh, if my mom would have been alive today, uh, she would have been in her 80s, maybe 90 or something, and she would have been vegging around, you know, on, on, you know, Camarillo State Hospital. So perhaps it was a blessing that she's uh, with a higher power, and at peace. I, I believe that. Um, something else, the connection with the higher power that I was going to talk about on a, daily basis. on a daily basis. Well, it seems overwhelming to somebody who's new, but because I've been doing this for a while, um, I was taught to get down on my knees. And I said, Richie, I don't get down on my knees. I'm Jewish. And he had heard my inventory, and he said, Since when have you ever been a practicing Jew? <laughs> So you know, most of the time I get down on my knees. I get complacent. I get lazy. I say prayers. I have guys that call me. I'm, I, my profession, I'm up early, and uh, like I get my first call at like 5:15 in the morning. And we we read the literature, the, the day at a time books and stuff, and and then I call my sponsor at a specific time, and that helps to get me out of bed. Um, I've heard prayers recently. I heard a version of the Serenity prayer that really. Uh, resonates with me, God grant me patience for changes that take time. Um, Grant me appreciation for everything that you've given me today in my life. Grant me tolerance for people that are struggling, that have other struggles, not to get angry. And grant me the strength to get up and try again one moment, one day, one hour at a time. So that really resonates with me. Another version of the serenity, where God grant me the serenity for an organized life, because I'm pretty disorganized, with leisure time, the courage to change my habits to ensure these joys, and the wisdom to be flexible. So when I'm not doing a purpose, I'm not going to it All kinds of gems like that, that I pick up at meetings and from you guys. Um... I mean, the, God, at the end of the day, uh, Yahoo and three gratefuls. Okay, um, I, at the end of my inventory. I, I, been, I kind of I don't force myself anymore, but it, I'm used to seeing the negative. Um, but there's always something, at least one thing that's outstanding that happens in my life, and there's three things that I'm grateful for, usually. And I try to be diverse, because I'm grateful for my goodbye, my, my family, you know. but I got a guy that I sponsor that always can seize things and, and is original and stuff, so he helps me be original. So those are just a few things. Yeah, and there's more, but, uh, but that helps. Yeah? Thank you for your share. How do you balance the Father, worker, person who has to, you know, be involved in the programs. How do you balance? It? I'm going to go to the
1: big book. You only have a Japanese Are you
0: serious? No. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, all right. So I'm going to paraphrase page eighty-seven. I looked at it last night at, at a meeting, and it says when we're agitated or upset, says we. Um, We says it's so good in the paper. We pause when... Oh, here it is. Thank you. Page 87. I need to memorize this. Okay. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to see ourselves. So, if I turn it over to a higher power, I don't get as crazy. I make lists. Sometimes I go to my sponsor. But on the top of my list, I always put 4HP. And I, ultimately, I turn it over to God, and I breathe, and I realize I'm not running the show, because when I think I am, I get scared. But And God shows me I'm not, because look at my life. I mean, my life is great. It's rich and full, and I don't have to be scared, and that's a choice also that I am. I don't have to be scared. Or if I am, I'll tell my sponsor and ask for courage and stuff. Thank you for that. Uh, yes? Hi, thank you so much for your share.
1: Could you talk about some of the you had to make
0: first one that comes to mind is Uncle Maury. Uh, Uncle Maury, when I was 16 years old, I had my uh, first job at McDonald's and I helped finance my Volkswagen, my 63 Volkswagen, and I started stealing money from the register. And, uh, and I was caught, and the manager took me in and he said, you're stealing and my first thing. No, I'm not. I didn't do it. He says, Michael, let me tell you how you did it. He, says, he put a paper bag and he showed me didn't know who to go to or where to go to. And, and I came clean. The next day I said, I did it. I said, I, I don't know why I did it. And he said, well, we don't know why you do things like that. He said, I'm going to give you a week to get another job. And I'm not going to tell your uncle. I'm not going to tell my, my cousins are working there, too. And so the next day I go in, and my name is crossed off the wall. And it turns in that my uncle's son came in, and one of the managers told him that I had stolen the money. And I just, it was horrible. And it must have been for 20 years. I would see my uncle Morrie at places, and I'd run. I couldn't. I couldn't look him in the eye. And when I first came to you guys, I knew about the ninth step. I'm not supposed to do a ninth step without your sponsor's help, but I, I didn't care. I couldn't stand the, the, the guilt that I felt with my Uncle Mori. And I went to him and I said, Uncle oh, Mori, you know, I'm a compulsive eater. I'm an alcoholic. I says, What? I go, No, and then part of the program is you have to remember when I stole the money. He says, Well, yeah, I kind of remember that. I'm so sorry. I lived for years and I was afraid of you and I couldn't. Remember. He says, Michael, don't worry about it. He says, Kids do stuff like that my Uncle Morty lived in his 90s and stuff. And we were very close. And we took my kids to visit him. And we went to movies. And, we went, and it was just, that was probably, I mean, worth more to me than if I paid back hundreds of thousands of dollars. I go to something called finance class as well. And uh, my wife and I go together. And we'll financially live within our means. And we paid back some student loans and, and old credit cards that, you know. And that's kind of making financial there. So, uh, yeah, so those are a couple of ways that i made them. Yes? so I want to understand that your son was able to stop taking medication? She said, my son was able to stop taking medication because he wanted a program, and I said, yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. That's a that's uh I get angry a lot and, and my wife is the oh I'm sorry. How do I deal with resentment? How do I deal with resentment? Um not very well. Um sometimes I, I it feels like I take like two steps forward and one step back and sometimes like one step forward and two steps back. But um I um well, in the big book I think I have this memorized thing. it talks about whenever I'm fearful or resentful or guilty, whatever's going on, it says immediately ask God to remove it. Ask God for help. I don't think about God when I'm resentful. I'm thinking about me or the person that I'm pissed off at. Then it says immediately talk to somebody. Call somebody. Um, If I'm in the middle of a school day and a class is coming in, and I'm fearful or something, I'll call. Usually I call my sponsor and he's not going to answer, but I know his machine is on. And I'll say, you know what, I'm really afraid. I've got the six-day class coming in, and they just, they're pissing me off, and they've got attitudes, and I know it's me. I know it's my attitude and whatever, but i just got to give it to you and God, and you're a machine. And then I'll hang up the phone, and then it says make amends if you have to. Well, thank God that I haven't had to make amends yet. And then it says resolutely turn to somebody that you can help. My class is coming in. I'm a teacher, so I'm of service to those kids. So that those four things seem to be a good formula. With my wife, however, yeah. you know, she's right in my face, and I've got this character defect that when I hurt, uh, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna hurt. My grandmother raised me, and God rest her soul, uh, she was a good woman, and everything she told me to do was absolutely correct. But she was in my face. And she was, you hazer's a damn kid. Hazer is a pig when you're, you know, if you're in Yiddish, it's a pig. And you offer a hazer a finger, and they want the whole hand. And why don't you do what I you say? you're going to do? And turn off that goddamn TV. It's late. Go to bed. And her husband's an alcoholic. He's doing geographics. Her son just killed himself from being gay. Her other son married a schizophrenic. And she's got the responsibility of raising this little kid. You know, and she don't know how to handle him. Let alone the shit that's coming down with her. So, I, my nature of reaction is, God damn it, you're not doing it my way. Isn't our starting time? To- is our starting time inconvenient for you when you come in late? The people that I sponsor, my sponsor does that to me. My other, my other sponsor is in your face right there. He helps me deal with my grandmother. You know, because everything he says is right. You know, and. Um, so anyway, those four things it tells you to do in the big book, and just pray. And, and it gets so tiresome to be angry. My my always sponsor says, you know, anger doesn't serve me. Anger doesn't serve me. But in the moment, it feels like you do. It's like an adrenaline rush, you know. But you feel so horrible. Afterwards. And then if you don't eat behind it, you even feel worse. So you say, all right, God, you are you aren't. You. And you know what a real contrary action is? When I want to rip Christine apart her lips off, when I just hate her, but I hug her. Oh my God. And she'll hug back. But I don't, I don't want to, I think I'm in control. I just. I don't, I don't want to. So you call me. I have a, no, we have anger. angry, angry <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you so
1: much. Um, can you talk about how you fit in recreation and hobbies and exercise into your busy life?
0: Richie says four to seven times a week. I exercise four to seven times a week. So this week I got three. Today I knew I was going to come to this meeting, and I was tired, lazy, whatever I didn't want to do it last night. So I got up, and I put on my running shoes and stuff, and I put on my headphones, and I ran for 30, 31 minutes. Listen to West side story mm-hmm. There's a place for us. A time and place for us. What is it? Peace and quiet and open air. Wait for us somewhere. That's a theme song. away. OA There's a for Hold my hand with a serenity prayer. We'll find a new way of living. We'll find a way of forgiving. So, well, this is where we find it. So, yeah. So, it wasn't a chore. It was fun. So that's how I do it. The, the recreation, the yeah, extra—we're so going to the Hollywood Bowl on uh, Sunday night. We're going to see uh, Oscars at the movies. And there's going to be an orchestra. Hollywood Bowl is cheap entertainment. It really is. We don't—we don't sit in the fancy seats. We sit up, take my binoculars, and get pictures. <laughs> Great. We're on a tight budget. You know, my wife's not working. I am, so I'm self support Oh man, I've got such a good life. I mean, I could go on forever, but I'm not going to. What's the next question? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I gained, uh, a few years ago, I gained started gaining gain my weight back, and I only knew it because my cholesterol went up uh, to 250, and that's rather high, and I was committing my food, and I was going to In-N-Out Burger a lot, and getting a protein style, because I didn't have the bun, so, you know, it's not... So many calories, but I was doing that maybe like five, six, seven times a week. I was eating cheese, which Richie calls artery clauditis, artery clauditis, and um, so when my cholesterol went way up, um, I called uh, Richie, and uh, he told me about uh, a food plan that he was on, which was a little bit more structured. We all know fruits and vegetables and all that good stuff, and, um, and so it was like more balanced and he said, and get more exercise, he said, four to seven times a week. So now my food plan consists of no recreational sugar. You know, I'm not crazy and compulsive about it. But, uh, um, and I eat basically three meals a day. Um, I'm not as rigid as I was, so if I take my lunch, um, I'll eat half of it, and then I'll eat half of it after school. So it'll be maybe like four meals a day. If I'm hungry in between, I'll pop a couple of pieces of fruit because food is pretty healthy. Um, So that's basically what it is. I I feel almost like I'm blasphemy, but the other night I went to Tito's Tacos. Mm -hmm. And I had two, now some of you will say, oh, I can't do that, and I can't eat like a gentleman and stuff. Um, I can't either. (laughs) I really can't. I mean, I could eat six of those fuckers. Excuse me. But, uh, but I pre-committed it, and I told my sponsor, and I had the tea tacos with the guacamole and stuff, and I'm not going to eat them today. You know, but every once in a while, I allow myself. Because it's all about, like, balance. And, uh, you know, in AA, you don't balance and have just a, the one martini. You just don't do it. You put it away. But in OA, I, I kind of want... And then if I frigging screw it around with the food and, and I really get crazy in my head, you know, my sponsor will suggest, you know, for 30 days, leave it alone or something like that. But so far, it's pretty comfortable. It's like it says in the big book: that reprieve, that neutrality, that place of neutrality. So, I, okay, I stop attend to. Thank you for letting me. See.